uh, get through the whole uh, congregation, but thank you all again for um, giving me this opportunity. I'm still nervous about it, just because this is the fourth time doesn't mean I'm, I'm not nervous about it, but I'm very excited about this. It's going to be a little bit different today, so I'm, I'm excited. We're going to have some, some media as part of this, uh, but to start, today is Reformation Sunday. Uh, not, it's an annual observance that takes place each year on the last Sunday in October to commemorate Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses to the castle door at Wittenberg. Um, so not something we like to celebrate. It's not like a big holiday or anything. That would be trick-or-treat, which we did last night. Uh, there's no candy with Reformation Sunday, but in honor of Reformation Sunday, I wanted to talk about how this sermon relates to that. A couple years ago, Kurt did a sermon series called The Five Solas. Probably within the first year that he was here, we, weren't, we hadn't even started attending yet. But he went through each of the five solas, and he talked about what they meant. And they're kind of the, I don't know, the summary of what was being taught in the Reformation. And so those five solas, just as a reminder, are sola scriptura, that the Bible alone is the only infallible rule of faith, sola gratia, which means that our salvation is through grace alone, solos Christos, which means our salvation is through Christ alone, sola fide, which means that our salvation is by faith alone, and then sola soli deo gloria, which means all things are with the glory of God alone. And we... Today, we're going to focus on that last one, um, and we're going to talk about Psalm 148 and how it's really just the perfect psalm to encapsulate that, uh, that truth, and so I'm going to pray, and then we are going to start looking at Psalm 148. Uh, God, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity. We, I pray this morning that you would awaken all of our hearts to see your glory. And to stir in us a desire to worship you and to worship you alone. Um, I want to acknowledge my weakness and my nervousness before you. And really all of us, we are weak. We uh, should tremble in view of your glory. In view of how amazing you are, how good you are, how loving you are. And so I pray this morning that you would just um, just yeah, reawaken awe and wonder in us of who you are and and in this amazing world that you've created and that we would worship you. Amen. Okay, so we're going to, like I said, this is going to be a little bit different this morning. So we're going to put some pictures up and turn the lights off just to see these pictures. Okay, so um, these are really cool pictures. And this first picture is actually called the Crescent Nebula. So I'm going to reread the first part of Psalm 148. I just want you to be able to look at these amazing pictures. And I'm going to talk more about what they come from and what they are in a second. Uh, so the first part of Psalm 148 says this. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. Praise him sun and moon and all you shining stars. Praise him you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. So when I decided that I wanted to do another psalm, uh, when Kurt asked me to preach, 
I found the the very end of the book of Psalms, and I found Psalm 148, and I was like, this is this is just an amazing psalm. And uh, Donnie Gobe uh, has a hobby uh, of astral photography. So these photos are from him, um, and I'm going to give you some amazing things that he taught me about space. Uh, just some things that this this first part is it's not from the Bible, but this information, these photos helped me come back to the scriptures and really appreciate what God was trying to communicate there. So like I said, this is the Crescent Nebula. I love the like the green. It's kind of, it's a little bit harder to see, but in the corner there, like how it's the nebula is like green. I think it's beautiful. Um, so the first thing that Donnie told me that I it's one of those things that we take for granted. But when you look up at the night sky, it's the same stars that our ancestors looked at two to 3,000 years ago when, over the period of time that the Bible was being written. There aren't many things that when you, in our life, when you go out and you look around or anything that are the exact same as when the Bible was being written. Even rocks have eroded a little bit or moved and rivers have changed and mountains have changed and the landscape has changed and there's no people or animals and very few structures from two to 3,000 years ago. But when you look up at the night sky, that is exactly what our ancestors would have seen. And when they wrote things, when the psalmist wrote Psalm 148, that's what he would have seen. Um, with all that being said, though, the sky doesn't look like that, right? That's not what it looked like at trick-or-treat last night. I mean, it was a little bit cloudy too, but that is not what it looked like. And that's because of things like light pollution and smog. So our world today does not look the exact same as the psalmist saw two to 3,000 years ago. How many of us, and you don't, you don't have to raise hand, but how many of us have been lucky enough to see a sky that even comes close to something like that. I know we went backpacking uh, my senior, after my senior year of high school in West Virginia, like 15 miles out up onto a mountain, and the sky kind of looked like that, and it was amazing. And if that experience hadn't happened, I don't even know if I would believe it's possible for the sky to really look like that. Um, let's go to the next picture. So this one's called the Elephant's Trunk Nebula. And I trust that Donnie will correct me if I get the names wrong at any point. But this thing here, kind of the middle bottom, that's the elephant's trunk. Um, so the second thing that Donnie explained to me is, so, you know, I'm asking, like, why? I mean, light pollution, we all kind of understand that. There are lights on. It's harder to see the sky because there are lights on. But he talked to me about this thing called the Bortle Scale, which helps quantify light pollution. Uh, so you can kind of see where you are in relation to what the sky would have been and what the sky is now. So there's, it goes from one to nine. Uh, one is like the clearest skies, the way that the ancient world would have been, and then nine is like, or one, yeah, nine is like downtown Tokyo. Okay, so you know, you've kind of got shepherds in a field at night in the Bible and downtown Tokyo. And so New Carlisle, and I was actually surprised about this, New Carlisle is actually a five. So even though we live, you know, literally in the middle of a series of cornfields. Um, it's, it's only a five. And Ken and Dolly's house, which is beautiful and out in the country in St. Paris, is a four. So even what we see now, even, and that's the four is what Donnie said in our, you know, in our general area. Four is about as clear of a sky as you're going to get. 
but they saw a border class one sky all the time. Every single day they looked up at the night sky. It was completely clear. And I'm, I am actually going to uh, quote the way Donnie said this to me. Um, he said, a shepherd tending to his herd uh, would have had a better view of the cosmos than 99% of people alive, and he would have seen it every night. It would have been part of his daily routine. And I really like thinking of the idea that like, seeing the sky like this would have been part of their daily routine in the same way that we see the sunrise and the sunset. This is what the heavens would have looked like. Okay, one more picture. And this is called the heart and the soul nebula. Uh, I think this is really cool. You can see the heart, and then I assume that the other thing is the soul. Um, and it is beautiful. Uh, this is my favorite one. And another thing that Donnie shared with me that I wanted to share with you is kind of just about the scope of space. So there are 10 to the 21st power number of stars in the observable universe. And that's one with 21 zeros and commas. That's, you know, that's like zillion, trillion, billion, a word that we just say 10 to the 21st. There's no, I don't even know if there is a word for that many zeros on the end of the word. And so when I, when he told me that, one thing I thought of was, you know, in Genesis 15, when the Lord tells Abraham to look up and count the stars, if he can. Today, if we told somebody to do that, Five minutes on a clear night. But like this is what he was talking about. When he told Abraham to look up at the sky and that his descendants would be like that and that that was the kind of miracle that God was going to create, that he was going to make his people as numerous as the stars in the heaven, that's what he was talking about. And that's why I wanted to start with these photos before we get into the scripture because what they saw when they did this and what we saw, what we see is not the same thing. And it can kind of cloud the majesty and the power. And again, in that example in Genesis 15, he would not have been able to number the stars. That was the point. That was the point of what he said. Count the stars if you are able. That will be the, how numerous your descendants are. And we don't see that because we don't see this. Now, I told you that Donnie told me this information, and he gave me these photos, and just in case it wasn't clear when I said he has a hobby of astral photography, Donnie took these photos, and this photo is from our church parking lot. So this is what the sky looks like above this building. He has a special lens on his camera that takes the light out and sees the light that, you know, that is there in, in space. And I just think that's amazing. So, I, I mean... I've looked at the sky at night here when we've stayed too long past kids' events with the kids. Like, that's up there. That, it's, it's amazing. And the response to that should just be wonder and awe of the maker and creator of all these things. Amos 5.8 says this. It says, He who made the Pleiades and the Orion, who turns midnight into dawn and darkens day into night, who calls forth the waters of the sea and pours them over the face of the land, the Lord is his name. Donnie shared that powerful verse with me. And those kinds of verses, the more we, I paid attention to it after he had shared that with me, the, the, these things are littered all over the scriptures. Like the verse that Kurt read this morning from Hebrews. I want to dig into Psalm 148 now and look at a particularly poignant example of the glory of God's in the heavens. So, 
this Psalm 148 is actually part of a collection of psalms at the end, and it's called, uh, scholars call it the final halal, or the final hallelujah. And so 146 through 150 are all songs of praise to the Lord, and that's how the book of Psalms ends. It ends with worshiping the Lord. And scholars pointed out that Psalm 148, in a lot of ways, is the apex. So it goes up 146, 147, 148, and then 149, 150. So this Psalm 148 was intentionally placed by the writer of the Psalms right here as a crescendo to the entire book of Psalms, to this entire section, to be a way to summarize the call of the Psalms to praise the Lord. Each of these Psalms start and end with praise the Lord. So if you're looking at your Bible, uh, you'll see that just the phrase praise the Lord. And that's part of the original text. And the phrase praise the Lord is what, when we say hallelujah, that's what, that's, that is the word in Hebrew. It's hallelujah, praise the Lord. Uh, hallelujah meaning praise and Yah is the word, you know, the Hebrew word or a shortened version of Yahweh, the Lord's name. So this is all about what God has done. And each one of these, it's, you know, each one of these Psalms is sandwiched between a call to praise the Lord. And looking more closely at Psalm 148, it is broken here into two sections too. Um, So you have the call to praise the Lord from the heavens, which we are going to talk more about today. And we have the call to praise the Lord from the earth. But I want to focus again on verses 1 through 6, which is the call to praise the Lord from the heavens. So in this first section here, verses 1 through 4 and 5 through 6 are also kind of subsections of this first section here. And verses 1 through 4 are what we would call a call to praise. If, you, if we look at verse 1, so after it says praise the Lord, it says praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights. So in, in this example, heavens and heights, they kind of parallel each other. Um, we, when we rhyme words, we rhyme with sounds, you know, with assonance, with co- consonants, with, with rhyming sounds at the end. But in Hebrew poetry and in the Psalms, they rhymed with ideas a lot, parallel ideas. So heavens and heights, it was a way of just reiterating the same thing. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what that word heavens even means. But the first thing to note is that he is calling on, the psalmist is calling on the heavens, the place itself, to praise the Lord. And moving into verse 2 then, he calls on angels and hosts in the heavens to praise the Lord. And so looking into this, angels, that word literally refers to messengers, and the word hosts refers to armies. The psalmist is using these two words as a complementary pair, the same way that he used heavens and heights as a complementary pair, to call on all of the angelic beings in the heavens, regardless of their role or their station, to praise the Lord. So I'm not going into a detailed exposition of different kinds of angels and what that means. The reason that the psalmist put, pointed this out and the commentators said that you know it uses hosts and it uses angels, it's any kind of heavenly being are being called on to praise the Lord. And that's actually really significant because... In a lot of religions then, and a lot of religions today, it's the heavenly beings themselves that are being worshipped. It's the angels that get worshipped. 
in, from the Old Testament, the New Testament times to today, these things that maybe we would call angels or maybe you would call demigods or spirits or whatever you want to call them, often those things become the object of worship for people who, who don't know the truth about God. And the psalmist includes that to remind all of us that these things are called to praise the Lord just like everything else is. These things themselves are not worthy of praise. They are called to praise their creator. So moving into the next pair in verse 3, it says, Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. So we, you know, we know what the sun and the moon are. But the shining stars, I thought that that was a very interesting section. So I think it refers to literally the stars, right? It refers to the shining stars. But another thing that the scriptures talk about is something called the morning stars, which is visible planets. Um, and, and Donnie told me uh, that visible planets, uh, although we can't really see them now, I mean, some nights you can see, hey, there's Mars, hey, there's Venus, but some of them would have been so visible that they could have even cast a shadow on the earth, the way that a, the moon can do that on a particularly clear night. So the reason that that's significant is because it's, I think that this verse, from studying this, I think that this verse is talking about all the great lights in the sky. So Genesis 1 says that the Lord put the sun and the moon and the stars to be the, quote, great lights in the sky. I feel like it is talking about the visible planets. It's talking about those things that, again, could have been worshipped and were worshipped by ancient people. You know, you've heard of sun gods. You've heard of moon gods. You've heard of and Mars is a Roman god of the planet Mars. These things that moved people to worship because of how massive and how beautiful and how amazing they were, all of these things are being called on to praise the Lord. Moving then into... Um, Verse 4, it says, praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. So this is where I want to take a slight detour and talk about that word heavens. So this was actually, this does not seem like this would be the most confusing part of the whole psalm. But the word heavens was actually the most confusing part of the whole psalm. Because in the scriptures, when they say the word heavens, we, we have a clear idea of what we mean when we say heaven, right? Like the place you go, where your, where your soul goes, when you die, to stay with the Lord until he returns to inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth, right? To inaugurate the kingdom. We, we, we know about that place. We, we talk about heaven, we think about heaven. But when they talked about heaven, it could mean that. It could mean just the sky. It could mean space. It could mean sky and the space. It could mean the place where the angels live. So it kind of depends on the context of the heavens. And as I was thinking about it, it really made a lot of sense because the heavens are basically everything that's up. It's just everything that's up. It's a catch-all word. A lot of times we want things to be more specific than that in like our modern and scientific world that we live in. And there's nothing wrong with being specific. But the scriptures, the heavens is just, it's calling on everything above. With that being said, this phrase, the highest heavens, is more specific. And occasionally the scriptures do make things more specific. And this is talking about the realm where the, the angelic beings live in the, the realm where God dwells himself. So it's even calling on that. Again, the highest realm, the highest conceivable place, the closest place where you could go to be next to God. This place that's just imagined filled with holiness and 
wonder and awe. And even that place is being called on to worship the Lord. The psalmist isn't differentiating between intelligent beings, inanimate objects, places. It doesn't matter. He's calling on literally everything in the heavens. And in the second section, he will call on literally everything in the earth to praise the Lord because everything is below the Lord. Everything is called to worship him. And at the very end of verse 4 there, it does say you waters above the heavens. This is similar to the language of Genesis 1 where it's talking about, you know, the Lord storing up waters in the heaven. And that's kind of how it's kind of how they thought about the water cycle, that the Lord stored the waters up in the heavens. We might now say the Lord stores it up in the clouds until the, you know, the drops get dense enough and it falls to the earth. But it's the same thing. They're calling on all of the, all of the natural cycles of the earth as well to praise the Lord. So that's the first section. He's called, the psalmist is calling on all of these, this full list of things, trying to give examples of all different kinds of things. Not an exhaustive list, but he's calling on all of these things to worship the Lord. And then in verses 5 and 6, he gives a justification for why they have a reason to praise. Reading them again, it says, For he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. It starts with the phrase, let them. I thought that this was helpful that one of the commentators translated that, they must praise the Lord. And we could think of that as a command, like they must, they are required to. But another way to think of that is like a compulsion. They must praise the Lord. They can't help but praise the Lord. They are this beautiful. They are this wonderful. The sun, the stars, the heavens. These things must, they cannot help but give glory to their creator because he created them. There was nothing and he spoke and he created all of them from his own mind with no prior materials, with no prior thoughts. He created these things. Everything in the heavens, as marvelous and as beautiful as it is, owes its existence to the Creator. So that's the end of the first section, and if I had more time, I would, I would love to talk about the second section. Maybe I will talk about the second section someday, but I want to keep focusing in on this. Now, there is a verse at the end of this, in verse 13, that really pulls together the f- whole first section and second section that I want us to look at. So if you're in your Bible, skip down to verse 13. Verse 13 says, Let them, referring to everything that he has talked about, in the heavens and then in the second section on the earth, it says, Let them praise the name of the Lord. For his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. Again, that phrase, let them, that, that command, but also this just this compulsion, this desire that all things have to worship the Lord. The key word here, though, is alone. Tying it into the very first thing I said, this idea of soli deo gloria, that the Lord alone is to be exalted. And I've hinted at that throughout the first section as we've talked about it, all these things that could receive the praise that often do receive the praise in other cultures and even in our culture, all these other things, the psalmist makes extremely clear, the Lord alone is to be praised. His name alone is exalted. 
despite the scope, despite the size, despite the beauty, despite the majesty of all these things, whether just, you know, and, and again, this can be both your experience of it, but also when people are scientists and, or even just, you know, like Donnie, he's it's a amateur. I don't know how amateur this photography is here. It's amazing. But when you start to look more into this, I feel like your appreciation and your awe and your wonder of it only increase. But again, these things themselves are not to be worshipped. And why is that? Why does the Lord alone receive our praise? And I know it's like we're in church, like the Lord alone receives our praise. But the verse itself actually shows us this. It, when, it, when it says that the Lord is above that word above in verse uh, 13, uh, the, the third line in it. His majesty is above earth and heaven. That word above is hinting at a couple of things. And there's a lot packed into that word, so I want to unpack that. The first thing is that the Lord is, being above is a way of saying that the Lord is eternal. He is above, he is before, even our conception of time. The Lord is above all of these things. And then that the Lord is holy that he's distinct from his creation, that he is not a part of the creation, that he stands transcendent above it, while also still being present in it, but he is above it. He is not bound by it. And then the third thing is that the Lord is the king of his creation. He rules over all that he has created. And since he is the creator, he alone has the right to be the king. He alone has the right to be above and to rule it. So that phrase, above, shows us that the Lord alone deserves all glory and honor because he alone is worthy of it. And if this still seems strange, I think about it this way. I was, I was really trying to think about it. How, how do we dig even deeper into this? Because oftentimes at church, I mean, we sing songs to praise the Lord every week, but taking a step back and thinking about why do we do that? We instinctively give credit and praise to amazing things that we see. And all of us are different. Some of us will do that with musicians. Some of that will do this with artists. Some people will do this with sports stars. Some people will do this with YouTubers. It doesn't matter what it is. My silly example is that I'm obsessed with the show First Things First on Fox Sports Podcast. And literally... The entire show, other than like, who's here's who played good and here's who played bad and a recap of the games. It just is invariably dissensions into who is the greatest basketball player of all time. Is it Michael? Is it LeBron? Who's the greatest quarterback right now? You know, that's what it's all about. And this, it's the same discussions all the time. And I still listen to it all the time. Aaron really likes the voice. I don't even know what season the voice is on. Every year, it's you get a bunch of really, really talented, can sing amazingly better than I can sing people, and they compete to see who has the best voice. And it's the same idea of Amer as American Idol, if some people aren't familiar with the voice. But they do this season after season after season. It's this, I mean, they change it up to try to keep you entertained, but it's the same thing. And why do we keep? Because we're obsessed we're obsessed. We're obsessed with who the best sports star is. We're obsessed with who the best musician is. And it's really exciting to watch a really talented football player go out there and play a good game. We're, it's really exciting to listen to somebody who can sing a lot better than we can, unless maybe you're Jeff. You know, like, um, I certainly can't sing like that. 
it, we're hardwired. It's instinctual to give credit and to praise to that which is worthy. Praising God's like that, except for he created everything. It's an infinitely different scale. It's an infinitely different degree. And I think space, space particularly helps us see that because of how huge it is. There is a common objection to Christianity that goes something like this. Now that we know how big space is, does God really care about that, this little blue orb of Earth? With that much size, with that many stars, with that, like, does, why would God care about a planet like this? And I feel like that's, there, we have to like flip that. It's like, one, the scope and the size and the grandeur of space reminds us how amazing God is. We're focused on the best voice or the best quarterback, and God's like, look at this. Look at this. How much more amazing am I? than all of this. And the other thing to think about, so there's that side of it, but the other side to think about is, like, that's what grace is. This little blue orb that we live on, why would God care about it? It's like, that's grace. In the analogy, if it's like, why does God care about the earth and space? It's like, why does God care about me in this sea of seven trillion, billion, a tri- trillion? We're in the trillions now of people. I, wrote, I didn't write that down, but there's a lot of people on the planet right now, and God cares about each and every person individually in the same way he cares about this little blue orb floating out in space. That's who our God is. He can have, he is that transcendent and that amazing, and these things are that large, but he pays attention to the tiniest little details, including our lives. The other thing I want to say, though, is I have said probably too many times, Kurt will tell me, that like I have said we must praise, like this is why we must praise. And I've said it a lot, and that's kind of like the point of the sermon. But don't forget this either. And I was really convicted of this after writing this the first time. God doesn't need our praise. God wants our praise. And so this whole sermon is about how God wants our praise, and God deserves our praise, and God is worthy of our praise, but God does not need our praise. Ultimately, we're the ones who need him. We need that. Again, that instinctual desire to worship things and to praise things, that shows that that's like hardwired deep into us. We need him. We ultimately need an object of worship that is worthy, that can handle all of that. Because everything on this earth is going to fail. Even, you know, Tom Brady lost Super Bowls. You know, and Patrick Mahomes will lose Super Bowls. And the people who win the voice sometimes don't, they end up, they're not where they make music. And even the best artists had paintings that they probably threw away. Everybody's voice will eventually fade. Everybody's career will eventually fade. We need something that we can look up to and that we can worship that is solid, that is firm, that is truly worthy, that is truly infinite and eternal. And that's when we'll find our true joy in life. And that's what's kind of paradoxical because I think sometimes when we hear we must praise, we must praise, it feels like a command or a duty, but really it's a joy. When we turn our, in the same way that we, when we are doing something that we love, like watching football or watching The Voice, in the same way that we really truly enjoy that, God wants us to truly, truly enjoy worshiping him and praising him because that will 
that is ultimately the thing that will fill our hearts in a way that nothing else can because we were designed to do that. So moving forward into the rest of today and this week and beyond, I wanted to give us three things that we could do and think about to try to live this way. And so the first thing uh, is obvious, but I put to open our eyes more to the beauty of the created world. We should pray in our prayers. We should pray to God that we can recover the sense of awe and wonder at the created world like a child has. I know, you know, having kids really helps with this. Conroy and Evie are just enamored with, like, the most simple leaves and insects and flowers, things that we just step on and run past and don't care about. And they are like, look at this thing. The night we were at Ken and Dolly's for the fish fry, like, I was in the middle of some conversation, and I actually think it was like a good spiritual conversation, but Conroy just ran up to me, and he tugged on my shirt, and he's like, Dad, look at that beautiful sunset. You know, that, it's like, and it was. And in that moment, I was actually able to humble myself and look at it and be like, wow, that's really beautiful. You know, that is amazing. Praying for us, and we're not going to be perfect. We, you know, we have busy lives, but to be able to look at things and to enjoy things and to see the glory of God and those things—that's something to pray for. The photos and talking about all this stuff with Donnie helped reawaken that inside of me. And this psalm, realizing that this this is the this is the purpose, you know, to to fall in love with God, to be in relationship with Him, to to worship Him, uh, it. It's always good to have that reminder. The second thing is, and it kind of flowing right out of the first thing, is to, to turn that awe and wonder into praise of the Creator. Again, the, you know, throughout here, that phrase, let them, the, the we must, the compulsion. There's one thing to recognize how amazing this is, but there's another thing to turn that recognition, to turn that awe, and to turn that wonder into praise. And to kind of say why I'm separating this out, there are lots of people in the world who recognize how amazing this is, but they don't turn it to praise. You can think about lots of science podcasts and astrology podcasts, uh, astronomy, not astrology, that's a different thing. Um, you can think of all these things. Uh, I mean, famous people like, and this is, not picking, this is not picking on them, I'm just picking the two famous names, but people like Neil deGrasse Tyson or people older, for maybe older generations, Carl Sagan, who have the most amazing material about space. And they're really awesome to listen to. They're geniuses. It's amazing. But neither of them ever, well, in Carl's, the late Carl Sagan's case, we don't know that he ever decided to give his life to the Lord. He was an atheist, and Neil deGrasse Tyson is currently in the same boat. So it's one thing to recognize it, and those two people are preeminent in recognizing how amazing the glory of God's are. God is in the heavens. But to then recognize it and turn it to praise, and that's even in our own hearts. This is not just like a, hey, they need to do that, but we need to do that. When I saw that sunset in Ken and Dolly's was my first reaction, like, wow, that's really pretty. That would be good, you know, like to take a picture of or is it's like, wow, God's amazing. Like praying for that kind of heart level response to go, wow, God is amazing. And then the third thing that we can do is we can, we can pray to become a part of how God uses his creation to speak to people. 
even those who don't know God instinctively know and feel the glory of God in creation to some degree. Like Romans 1.20 says, For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. And I was really reminded of this recently. My boss, who is self-admittedly not at all a religious person, um, talked to me out of nowhere about how he saw, because, you know, this total solar eclipse is coming up in uh, the spring time frame, yeah. Um, and my boss has seen it twice before, and he's going to go see it again. He's driven all kinds of distances, and I'm like, you know, Don, I didn't know that about you. And he's like, man, I'll tell you what. He's like, I'm not religious, but that is a religious experience. He's like, that's my religion. It's so amazing. It's so, you know, and I was, I was kind of like, oh, my gosh, this is not what I didn't know what to say. That was an opportunity that, like, maybe I could have, you know, shared, you know, a little kernel of truth with him. But I was so taken back that he said that about this experience. I, I didn't even know what to do. I just said something like, that's really cool. Maybe I'll have to go see one of those in my lifetime. That's God. They're recognizing that. But again, remember, Kurt just preached through Romans 1. That's not enough. So we can pray that in those moments, whether whether we're with family or with friends or with whatever, and people will take an interest in in the beauty of nature and the glory of God and all these things, I'm not saying have like a canned gospel presentation ready for them. I'm saying that when people's heart awakens, to the kinds of things that God has created in the world, that's the first step of the Holy Spirit working in someone's heart to lead them towards the creator of it all. But in order to know that creator, they have to know the Lord. And so I want to end with just a reminder that Jesus is the Lord over all of these things. At the end of Colossians, it talks about how uh, the Lord has, and let me get there, very quickly, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians uh, 1, 15 through 20 is just an amazing power-packed section of Scripture. And the purpose of the whole thing is that Jesus is over all creation. The Lord has made him over all creation. He is the Word of God made flesh, and he rules over all creation. It's Jesus when we talk the way that I talked in the sermon, we can miss, we can kind of just think like God, like general God. But I'm not just talking about God, general God. We're talking about Jesus. Jesus is the God who created these things. Jesus is the word of God. And so, made flesh. So, when this happens in our hearts and in our minds and in our conversations, let's remember too to bring it back to Jesus, who is the Lord over all these things, because that is the only way to know the creator and to know the maker. And that's what's amazing, too. Earlier this year, I read a book about the incarnation, and that author, who's uh, Athanasius of Alexandria, written in like 300 AD, so a long time ago, he was still writing in a context where that the idea of the incarnation was crazy. Now it's like, oh yeah, you know, Jesus is God, Christmas, nativity set, you know, like it's part of our culture. But back then it wasn't quite yet part of their culture and they still had the sense of awe and wonder at it. The creator of the cosmos 
and of the stars came down to be a little baby to redeem us, each one of us in our individual lives from our sin. And that's how I want to end is to just just to be thankful to the Lord, to be thankful to Jesus that that this glory and this vastness and this amazingness did not prevent him from coming into the muck and grime of our own lives, from becoming flesh and deciding to redeem us, to forgive us, and to love us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the Psalms and how they call us to worship you. Thank you so much for Donnie and for sharing these pictures with us and with me and everything he's taught me and how you really used him in my life to just inspire this, to inspire this sermon. Um, Thank you, God, for your glory in the heavens and in the earth and in everything that you made. Help us to join the chorus of everything else that has that compulsion to worship you. In our sin, we can be hardened to that. We can refuse that, but I pray that you would melt hearts and soften them so that we can join everything else in creation that knows that it ought to praise you. And help us, Lord, in that to point others as well, to the maker of this beautiful world so that they can know you through Jesus. Amen.